Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. So far, this has been a very straight series when it comes to gender, so I was very glad when my goddaughter drew my attention to a book that was under my radar, a group biography of the lesbian women who made Paris their home and became central figures in the artistic movement we call modernism. The book is called No Modernism Without Lesbians. It is a bit of a clunky title for Diana Suhami's colourful portrait of four women who flourished in Paris between the wars. Arguably the most significant was trailblazing publisher Sylvia Beach. Others include Briar, a patron to other artists, Natalie Barney, a promiscuous society hostess, and groundbreaking writer Gertrude Stein. Their many lovers, friends, and yes, occasional husbands populate this entertaining and gossipy account of an experiment that challenged the patriarchy in a city where bohemians rubbed shoulders with aristocrats. Diana Suhami has written several biographies, mostly of lesbian couples. She spoke to me from her home in Cornwall. I began by asking her how she started as a biographer of lesbian lives. The first one was a biography of a woman called Glark. She was a 20th century painter and she dressed in men's clothes and and I wanted to write about lesbians, you know, but back in the 80s, you had to be very careful not to use the word lesbian if you wanted a mainstream publisher. And I think one of the one of the sort of trajectories of all this is my latest book, they actually wanted the word in the title. So know. that shows you how much things have changed. Exactly. Originally, you wrote about couples. You wrote about Gertrude and Alice, and obviously that's Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. You wrote about Garbo and Cecil Beaton. Alice Keppel and Violet Trefusis. So yes. what is the appeal to you of writing biographies of couples? Well, I, I, I didn't want to write the same book, you know, beginning at the beginning and going through to the end, one thing after another sort of book. I wanted a different conceptual underpinning in each case, do you know. So with Gertrude and Alice, it was the underpinning idea was that here was... Here was the whole definition, if you like, of a happy marriage, and it was between two eccentric women, you know, the sort of marriage that that so many people don't achieve. And then with Mrs. Keppel and her daughter, it was about hypocrisy. That was the underpinning idea. You know, Mrs. Keppel was the was the much lauded lover of the king, Edward the Seventh, and Violet Trefusis, her daughter, was the much reviled daughter banished to Paris and forced into a forced into a loveless marriage because she was in love with Vita Sackville West. With Greta Garbo and Cecil Beaton it was a bit different. The idea was the image and and all that playful business of of gender, you know. So uh, in each case although it was although it was ostensibly the same theme of couples they, there was there was a different con- concept behind all of them. You've said that the internet absolves the biographer of having to include everything. And so I was curious about whether that meant that you expected that if we were reading the book and we wanted to know more, we would go off and Google more and find other books and other references. I mean, when you're saying that the internet absolves the biographer of having to include everything, what are you leaving out? You know, the, the feeling of too much information, 
I think we can have such information overload and it can be a danger when researching to think, oh, I can't leave that out or, oh, I found something that nobody's found. I have a little adage, if in doubt, out. (laughs) You know, it's sort of like housekeeping. It's always a good feeling to chuck stuff out rather than to bring stuff in. Your school of biography then is the decluttered school of biography. Yes, yes. I mean, it it can weigh heavily on you as a reader, I think. If there's too much information and you you just feel overwhelmed and the book is so fat that you can't hold it, can't hold it on the bus, you know. <laughs> I do, I do, I do like chucking stuff out. Yes, I do. <laughs> I find that really fascinating because I, I, I suppose recently um, for this podcast, I've interviewed Hermione Lee. And I must say, mm. you know, in her biography of Tom Stoppard, she spares us nothing. Like That's she gives right. us the guest lists for right. p- Stoppard's parties and she describes the interiors of every single That's house. Right. <laughs> and she does that with a kind of exuberance yes. and generosity. And also she is showing you how much she knows. Yes. And she did exactly the same thing with Edith Wharton. That's right. Uh, and I did get to a certain point where I thought, Stop. You've just got to stop. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think her huge gift, which is that she can do that and make it readable. I think if it was me, I would just be sitting under (laughs) under a whole, you know, excess of information without being able to. I think it is wonderful the way she does marshal so much information and keep the narrative firmly alive. You know, it it is a true gift. But it isn't what I... I think I don't have the patience for it, nor the research. I mean, how you know, there is the research tenacity to want to include everything. Well, let me ask you about that because I wondered with your research, are you always researching from primary sources or are you quite happy to go to secondary sources and kind of do a, I mean, it sounds a bit insulting to call it a copy and paste, but do you take scraps from other biographies to do kind of a composite? If it's something that I want. I mean, with the with the first book that I did, a biography, this biography of the woman, Gluck, no one had written about her before, and her executor gave me these cardboard boxes full of original material, you know, and, and I remember my panic, make a life out of that, as I sort of couldn't read the handwriting and and they all called each other nicknames like Ugh. dearest dearest rabbit skin snooch bun snoo or something. I didn't know what they were talking about, you know. And you, but if you stare about it, stare at it for long enough, it makes sense. So that one, it's it's wonderful if you have a, a box of a box of original letters. Then you can come, you know, you you deal with what you've got. Sometimes people have burned most of it, or it's in some very precious library where you're given one page at a time, do you know, and you have to wear white gloves and then it's taken away from you. And after day six, your patience has waned, do you know. So it is, I think it's interesting. I think what is it that keeps that keeps it valid and, and, and truthful? And I think you, it's a sort of like flicking your, flicking your finger against the glass to see if it rings true, do you know.
you've been quite clever in that you've been able to recycle your existing interests, say, in Gertrude, in Gertrude Stein, and in Natalie Barney in No Modernism Without Lesbians. So you add other women to that grouping, but you have been able to sort of cannibalise your own previous material. I think I think that's right. But also, it is, it's the last book about lesbians that I want to write. And, and I learn, I, I felt that with this last book, that I, I had more than I knew I'd got, do you know, and that the past research when I'd been writing about, say, Natalie Barney or Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, that it, they were part of a bigger, a bigger society, do you know, which was lesbian society in Paris between the wars. And how extraordinary it was that they were a society. And so I couldn't leave them, whereas before, I'd, as I said, I'd written about Gertrude and Alice and their happy marriage. And, and Natalie Barney in relation to Romaine Brooks. Now I brought them into the wider picture of, of this extraordinarily creative lesbian society that made such a contribution and, and who are very largely omitted from, you know, mention of modernism, you know, and I really don't think it would have happened without them. Sylvia Beach was a vicar's daughter, and unlike several of the other women in this group biography, she did not have inherited wealth to indulge her artistic whims with. She she fell in love with Adrienne Monnier, who had a, a French book a French bookseller. She had a bookshop, and um, Sylvia Beach was very taken with her bookshop. Wanted one along the same lines, and she started it really with no money, you know, and then she. She, it became a meeting place for all the expatriate writers who, you, there was censorship, you see, in, the sta- in America and in England. And she single-handedly published Ulysses, you know, when it was a banned book, no, no, no commercial publisher would touch it. And her bookshop was more than a bookshop. It became this meeting place. She, writers like Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald, and they all congregated. They, they got off the boat ship and made their way to Sylvia Beach, you know, and she gave them letters of introduction and she helped them and her her bookshop was also a lending library. She was, she didn't, people would take out books and never return them, you know. She wasn't, she wasn't, she wasn't a particularly wonderful businesswoman. It was extraordinary what she did, really. And then this publication of, of Ulysses, which is viewed as a seminal modernist novel, you know. Well, it is. But, Diana, I was really shocked to learn of the extent to which Joyce betrayed her and abused her generosity. So perhaps you could tell us about that, because obviously he comes out of it, from your point of view, he comes out of this very badly. Yes, I, I yeah, I think I think he was an absolute cad. Yes, because she because it was a a banned book. Her publication was pirated. She had no she had no legal rights to it. She could have no copyright. And what happened was that it became it, it's it was it was just other uh, um, pirates moved in, produced other copies. She got, and then. Uh, when it when it when it censorship stopped in the 1930s, and I think it was Random House who published it, and within months he'd made forty five thousand dollars, and he made no mention of her and just took the money and and um, which I thought was shocking. You know? 
awful. It was just it was just awful because she'd not she wasn't just a publisher. She looked after him. She gave him money. He went into draft after draft. He was editing it and changing it right up to the last minute. It really did take her to the point of breakdown and to the point yes. of, of neglecting her shop um, in looking after him. She, he would. He was a very lavish character. He'd borrow money from her and then spend it on expensive meals and presents and you know, wasn't wasn't quite wasn't right, but I, I, she never regretted the publication. She, she just said in her very kind of polite way that her own feelings about his his eventual publication through a mainstream publisher and giving her no money that her feelings were weren't ones that she wished to express. He was a troubled man. I mean, he he was his daughter Lucia was schizophrenic really and I think that I mean certainly in his work after Ulysses and in Ulysses there's, there's quite a lot of madness um, you know the, the, or, or link to florid mental states I think in his in his writing and in, and in his behavior I and mean, his his marriage his relationship to his children he, he wasn't stable in any sense and whether she forgave him or not, she did. She certainly didn't. He died in, I think it was 1941, at the beginning of the Second World War. She wouldn't publish again. She she called herself a one one book publisher. She wouldn't publish D. H. Lawrence, Lady Chatterley's Lover, which was banned. Of all the women in the book, she is the one who seems the least flamboyantly out as far as lesbianism mm. is concerned. She's much more sort of low-key about it, isn't she, in terms of um, the others have such kind of flamboyant and extravagant mm. affairs, apart from, you know, Gertrude and Alice, mm. who were very cosy and domestic. Yes, I think it was, it was her personality. She was she was restrained. She, she said that her loves were Adrienne Monnier, and Shakespeare and Company and James Joyce. And those were the three abiding thing, abiding points of concentration for her. Um, she wasn't one who, she didn't, she, she, she was a public servant, really, you know. Her, her whole attitude was of service and d doing things for others. Um, rather than self-regard, I don't, I think she had very little self-regard. Well, and the other women that you write about, I mean, are often endowed with great beauty, a very high sex drive and privilege. Some of them are born into tremendous wealth, marry men who may also be homosexual, who are entering into all sorts of uh, transactional relationships which are mutually beneficial to each party. One of the ones I include is Briar. But she wasn't. She she certainly, in today's terms, would be viewed as transgender. And she she was the yes, she was the daughter of the richest man in England. She felt herself to be a boy born born into a girl's body, which is that awful not awful but familiar transgender feeling that you are in the wrong body. And and then although I said call give the title no lesbians, I use it as a as a as a general noun, I she would be trans in today's and and she wasn't she her partner was H D Hilda Doolittle and she the poet Hilda Doolittle and she was you know 
she 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 did everything. She made her career and her marriages were she married gay men, Robert McCallman, and then set him up as a publisher in Paris. But she did it to to get her inheritance. Quite quite really quite boldly, you know. She she met him, said, Let's get married, you can come to Paris, but and I'll have I'll, I'll placate my parents who want to see me as as a conventional marriage, Mrs. Mrs. McCalman, you know, which she never was. But she she her contribution was as a philanthropist. I mean, as a publisher, as a philanthropist, she 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 really did help others with her money. She got Freud out of Austria at the beginning of the Second World War. She she gave money to the new film movement and she all the, all the experimental modernist work Brier was there financing it i mean she set McCalman, her gay husband lavender cover up marriage up as a publisher and he published for the first time scott fitzgerald and hemingway and gertrude stein you know Some of the women that you're talking about do have lovers who are French, mm. uh, French aristocrats. I'm thinking of or no. French courtesans. I'm thinking of someone like Liane de Pougy, who is obviously already a very well-known figure of the Belle Epoque. But would you say that in the main, this was an enclave primarily made up of Anglo-Americans and that they didn't mix much with the French, or is that completely wrong? On the contrary, they were very cosmopolitan and they were always being very social with French people. No, I think it was, and that was really what interested me, that it was almost a society within a society. Underpinning it all was this this resistance of patriarchy, you know, that they weren't going to be answerable to the men who made the rules. I mean, what ended the whole and turned it into an experiment rather than to an abiding thing was the Second World War. Yes. When the the Germans marched into, the German army marched into Paris in in 1940, like like the Russians are marching into Ukraine. You know, this this terrible, I mean, um, Virginia Woolf called it this, ludicrous masculine fiction, this preposterous masculine fiction, you know, except it was preposterous masculine fact of war. What was it about Paris's social mores that was so fertile for these relationships and this kind of creative explosion? I think for the for the women that I write about, I mean, Gertrude Stein said um, it wasn't just what Paris gave you, it was all it didn't take away, which was huge, you know, because... Meaning what? Meaning meaning there was censorship, you know. I mean, if you think in in England, what was the one, one um, lesbian novel, Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness, 1928, the most anodyne of, of books, boring book, really, not particularly well written, um, enough to turn a gay gay girl straight, really. Um, 
I mean, but but it was banned as obscene because the subject matter was deemed obscene. Um, it was also banned in the States. And in the States, there was prohibition as well. I mean, um, Sylvia Beach said that people flocked to Paris because you couldn't get Ulysses and you couldn't get a drink in the States. Um, and, you know, that remark, it wasn't just what... Paris gave you, it was all it didn't take away. They could be, I think, getting away from not just censorship, but family expectations was hugely important to them. Small town expectations or even large town expectations. And what happened was they, because they came into territory, the rents were cheap, food was good, you know, their money went further um, and there were like-minded people around. They gravitated towards each other. They gravitated towards the lesbian community. I mean, that I found more and more as I wrote, that, that the word got round, that here was the place to go to. And you get, get away from your parents. You get away from the, the sense of being disapproved of. And that freedom uh, meant they could create their own community, which was extraordinary. And Paris let them do it, which they couldn't do it in their hometowns of Washington, London, New York. There was a tolerance of, of homosexuality that didn't exist. It wasn't illegal. But I don't think that indigenous French were, were necessarily less prejudiced. It's, it's again this thing of, of getting away from what, from what suppresses and represses you, you know. I think it's a good thing to do, and they did it. I think, you know, and, and yes, they wrote what they wanted, published each other, painted each other, Romain, Romain Brooks painted most of them. I think it was Truman Capote went to her studio and saw all these paintings and called it the all-time gallery of famous dykes, you know. Yes, yes, I love that quote. Uh, were any of them actually any good as writers? I mean, in the cluster of women in your book, is there one that stands out for you as a writer that we should know better and that we should acknowledge more and hasn't had the credit she deserved? Violet Trefusis was a very you know, Mrs. Keppel's daughter. She's a very undervalued writer. And gradually and slowly her books are being given the value that they, that they deserve. What do you think was the appeal of modernism as an aesthetic or as a movement that united these women in attracting them, whether it was in a literary sense or whether it was in what was happening in music or what was happening in art? What was it about modernism, about this break with tradition? And, okay, we've talked about the importance of freedom from censorship, but what else was it about modernism that you think was so compelling to these women? I think it was that it was experiment, that it was a, an opportunity for them to have a voice. I mean, historically, 19th century literature and art was masculine-dominated. Masculine I mean, women, had, women took men's names to get heard. They had to break the rules in order to find themselves. And so it was this... It was this shock of the new, do you know? I mean, Gertrude, who started off by, 
buying the work. I mean, how good she made her money was by buying the works of Matisse and Cezanne and Picasso when they were unknown students. And what, what were they doing? They were painting what were considered terrible daubs of colour and formless things. And she she liked them. She bought them for no money and soon had a collection she couldn't even insure. It was so insured, stuck it on the walls and it was beyond price. But, you know, she, she'd go off and buy a couple of paintings and have honey cakes for tea and take them home. Um, and she did the same with literature, that it, this rule-breaking, which then meant, that, and they did it in their private lives as well, so that it became not just what you paint and what you write, but who you are. And so modernism became a, the, this whole thing of breaking the old rules and bringing on the new, and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, do you know. But it was it was wonderful, and I would have gone on and been and flowered more if the Second World War hadn't happened. You know, I have a very clear picture, obviously, of what Gertrude Stein looked like, partly thanks to Picasso, quite a sort of heavily thick-set woman, quite plainly dressed with a bun of hair, chignon. I have a sense from your book and from the photographs of what Sylvia Beach looked like, which is a kind of no-nonsense sort of dresser. But what did the other women that you write about look like in terms of how did they dress? Well, dress dresses, dress is always a code, isn't it? I mean, it was a time when, you, you know, Gertrude started off with a bun of hair, but then she... Then Alice cut it, and she cut it with a kitchen scissors and didn't know when to stop, and it got shorter and shorter, and the shorter it got, the more she liked it. Um, I think it was Hemingway who said she she looked like a Roman emperor, which is all right if you want your women to look like Roman emperors, you know. But they, <laughs> yes, they cut their hair. They, they wore freer clothes. They didn't wear trousers so much. That came in very slowly to wear trousers. I mean, Briar wore... She, someone said of her that there was absolutely nothing distinctive about her clothes. That she'd have a beret and a, although she had all that money, she'd have everything was very plainly dressed. But she, she wore jackets and it became rather mannish. I mean, people like um, Radcliffe Hall were very sartorial, but dressed in tailored clothes, but again a tailored skirt rather than trousers. Juna Barnes was very smart and fashionable. Natalie, of course, would dress in all manner of, you know, the, the frocks and then riding whips and breeches, do you know? So R- Romaine Brooks was ma- again managed. There was this sort of division of butch and femme to a degree of dressing. Um, there were codes. There was a club. Mo- a monocle was a sign of that you were lesbian. There was a club called the Monocle in Paris, and certainly Radcliffe Hall and Una Trubridge boasted their monocles. The discarding of hats, you know, the, the discarding of the encumbrance of repressive clothes that came in and was part of the whole package of of the modernist thing. I think so. If you go to Paris today, Diana, how much is there left as evidence of the era that you write about in this book? What can we go?
go and visit? What can we see with our own eyes that's not hidden away in an archive, which you as a biographer would possibly have access to? Where does one go on a sort of no modernism without lesbians pilgrimage? What are the sort of staging posts? Well, I guess you start off with um, Shakespeare and Company, which is, even yeah. though it's even though it's evolved into a very commercial bookshop, is, is still there with the, you know, I, I was... That they sort of reviewed by book and put it outside, you know. <laughs> they and and they still it still carries on. So there's the so Sylvia Beach is remembered in that way. There's twenty seven Rue de Fleurou where where Gertrude lived with Alice. You can go and look at that. There's there's Rue Jacob where where um, Natalie was. I think they've got plaques outside. So the nicest thing is to find their addresses, I think, and go around these, the left bank and look at where they were. Group biographies can feel bitty, and this one is slightly chaotic and choppy, but it's also full of flamboyantly big personalities that make you want to go and find out more about all of them, including the many minor characters. Thanks to Ella Kay for telling me about the book. If you recommend a biography and I feature it, I'll always thank you by name. And now for a bit of news. Blake Bailey, the controversial biographer of Philip Roth, who was accused of sexual harassment and rape by former students when his book came out, has been commissioned to write a book about his experiences of writing the biography and of cancel culture. The memoir, published as an e-book due in April of 2023, is called Repellent, which seems like a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is the final episode in this series, but the next series is already in the planning stages thanks to a generous grant from Create New South Wales. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media on Darawal Country. Our theme music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown.